0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. An in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at
1: shiftjh.org. Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. From their earliest days on the American frontier through their growth into a worldwide church, the spatially expansive Mormons made maps to help them create idealized communities, migrate to and colonize large parts of the American West, visualize the stories in their sacred texts, and spread their message internationally through a well-organized missionary system. A new book is out from University of Utah Press. It's called The Mapmakers of New Zion, A Cartographic History of Mormonism. The author is Richard Francavillia, Professor Emeritus of History and Geography at University of Texas at Arlington. He's been interested in maps since childhood. His publications include the recent Go East Young Man, Imagining the American West as the Orient. Among other publications, he lives in Oregon, where he teaches courses in religious studies at Willamette University. Richard Francavillia, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much for having me on, Tom. Uh,
1: So, interested in maps since childhood? Where did this come from, do you think?
2: I'm not sure. I think it was just part of the uh, uh, interest that I've always had in adventure and exploring places and things. And uh, I'm a little bit like the character who is mentioned in uh, The Heart of Darkness. The narrator, Marlow, talks about having a fascination with maps ever since he was a kid finding them irresistible and wanting to go someday where, you know, what was depicted on the map.
1: Hmm. You're a former employee of Rand McNally? Yes. that, That must was that a dream of yours growing up?
2: On the contrary, it was my first job out of high school in San Francisco, and I just fell into it. Loving maps, I guess they could sense that. And so they hired me, and I really enjoyed that job for a couple of years.
1: What did you do there?
2: Well, I sold maps and globes originally, and then I worked on maps, and then the people there said, Richard, you really ought to go to college. I hadn't thought about it. And so these good folks there said, you're the kind of kid who uh, is looking at all these maps, exploring all these maps. And so uh, I started college uh, a couple of years after that, and um, I really enjoyed college Majoring in geography, and uh, continuing <clears throat> from there on into a career involving maps in one way or the other.
1: So you begin the book with a couple of deceptively simple questions or seemingly simple questions. Uh, I'll ask you those questions. Uh, uh, what's a map maker? How do you define map maker?
2: Well, a map maker is anybody who makes a map, and that's uh, is, is deceptive because then we're automatically going to think about Rand McNally or about google map makers and things like that but actually anyone who makes a map is a map maker and that basically includes all of us at one time or another every one of us uh... makes maps we might draw draw, a a map on a napkin to help someone find you know where we live or we might do something else but everybody tends to think spatially and also uh, draft maps at one time or another.
1: And uh, the second question, what is a map? you go gone for several pages, but what, I wonder if you talk about that.
2: Yeah, I can do that very briefly. I think that a map is any kind of device. It's usually graphic that uh, depicts a place or uh, places in proximity to each other. And so that uh, a map is a uh, is a document in a sense, but it can also be A mental map, we can think about how to get someplace and thereby uh, have cognitive cognitive maps. But also, a map uh, is something that we can see on a computer screen now. It's in the ether, you know, out there, as well as on paper. Uh, People, originally, they might have drawn maps in the sand or on deer hides or something like that, or even chipped them into rocks. Mostly, we think about maps being lines on paper, but they can take many forms.
1: Hmm. I've been rereading uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He talks about, of course, uh, paradigms, thinking about things, mapping it out. I, I connect that up in my mind, that cognitive map of that kind, Could, could would that apply?
2: Yes, uh, there's also many almost metaphorical ways you can think about maps, and I love that concept. For example, uh, people are mapping genomes, or uh, poets are basically uh, configuring pages in a certain way or literature is structured in a certain way that may be a map and and and, and kind of segueing a little bit into religion uh, some scholars feel that religion itself is a map that provides guidance for people and helps them chart out you know various kinds of journeys so maps in a metaphorical sense are almost equally as exciting as maps in a literal sense.
1: Mm-hmm. So a religion is a map in and of itself. I wonder if you'd expand on that.
2: Well, it, it, it's something that uh, some scholars are uh, dealing with lately, and it's, it, it's more like thinking of religion as a series of uh, beliefs about uh, not only time, but place, ultimately. And so I explore that a little bit more in the book, and I'm going to invite readers to really read the book because mm-hmm. there's a lot of material uh, in that book that, that helps people understand religion in some different ways, perhaps, than they're maybe customarily th- uh, thinking of,
1: of it. And the book is The Mapmakers of New Zion. I'm talking to the author, Richard Francavilli. You're, you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, one 826 1495 or our email is upraccess@gmail.com, at gmail.com, upra at uh, gmail.com. Um, and uh, we're going to get into talking course about uh, maps as they relate to uh, Mormonism, and uh, tomorrow's Pioneer Day in in Utah, so very appropriate time to talk about this. Uh, I wonder if you talk about a couple of the the, the uh, maps that feature prominently in your introduction. Um, there, there's there's an extraordinary map. I have it in front of me here. It's the map of the square and stationary Earth. Yes. And this is this <laughs> is essentially a cosmology. This this is uh, and it's pushing back at this time. This is pretty late for this uh, eight late 1800s.
2: It is, and it's, it's very retro in a sense, and it's uh, a creation of a person who read the Scriptures, read, read the Bible, and took that literally in terms of everything that he uh, read, and he then concluded that the earth was not round, you know, that it was basically on a sort of a flat slab, and that it had angels in different corners of it and so on in this marvelous map done, oh, you know, you might expect something like this to be done, let's say, 600 years ago, but it was done just in the 1890s. And it's marvelous. And uh, it is, uh, it's a curiosity now, because uh, quite a while ago, perhaps several hundred years ago, maps associated with religious scriptures tended to be uh, associated with almost like a spiritual kind of a softer mapping, and we went into the direction of hard science and mapping and wanted to make maps depict places accurately that we know, you know, and that kind of thing, a place, the continents in a certain position. And so when science and religion sort of broke from each other in Western culture, the traditions went in two different directions. Now uh, uh, the, uh, the cartographer here decides, well, uh, you know, his name was Orlando Ferguson, he decides that uh, he's going to fight that current and actually create a map that uh, is correct according to biblical belief and therefore is correct in the way it really is. So he's a guy who's a little bit disconnected from Mm -hmm. (laughs) the mainstream, to put it mildly.
1: As you write in the book, uh, maps go out of date quickly as new information comes to light, but the very nature of this information, or misinformation, Can reveal a lot about perceptions of the time and history.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Maps are wonderful documents, and yes, just as soon as you complete a map, it's obsolete because something on it's going to change very likely. But, and by the way, that's the reason why we say, well, this map, uh, this roadmap we've been using, it's been in the glove box for, you know, three years. Let's get a new one, let's toss this. And maps are most of them ephemeral. Most maps that uh, were created through history have been disposed of in one way or the other. So it's really lucky that some people have had the foresight to preserve maps because they are a good window into understanding what people thought about places at particular times.
1: Wondering. Uh, um... Suppose the maps can go ahead. That's how we see this, and maps can point the way to the to the future or or to an unknown place. Maps can also be limiting, I, I guess. And I'm thinking about the you know the famous maps that you see from uh, from I guess early in the age of exploration. Beyond this point, there be monsters or dragons, etc. Yes. Mhm. Um, so I guess it could go either way.
2: Maps are just, there's no limit to maps because there's essentially no limit to the human mind. And so maps are, are used to chart places of fantasy, you know, the Hobbit and that sort of thing. They are, they are uh, oriented toward the future. Some people will draw maps of things as they'll be in the future. A lot of people draw maps as they think maps um, looked in the past. Uh, they deliberately do that to give them a retro feel.
1: Uh, you talk about uh, the power of uh, uh, you know the the photos that we've seen and depictions of seeing the Earth from above the Earth or outside the Earth. Mm-hmm. There is great power in that.
2: There is. Uh, uh, it's a very uh, it, it's a very human thing, by the way, to contemplate something from above to be able to look down on it because we're able to do that ourselves. By, by standing up and looking down. But also, it, we, I think humans tend to conceptualize um, th- the world that way and imagine what it's like to be higher than it, so that some maps are literally called bird's-eye views because they put the, the map reader in a position of, let's say, several hundred feet or several thousand feet above the Earth, looking at it much like a bird might see it flying. We tend to look down and see it straight down planimetrically. That's the way we uh, think most maps should be drawn because that seems more accurate to us. But there is real art in drawing maps that are bird's eye view too.
1: Before we get into uh, applying this directly to, uh, to Mormonism, very interesting application here. I want to talk about some uh, depictions of, of maps in, uh, in film and, and popular culture. One that I thought of immediately was the beginning of Bonanza, you know, where the, yes. the map of the Ponderosa, Ponderosa which, which burns. And, and the
2: flames, yeah, yeah, that's right, absolutely. There was even a story, uh, even a subsequent movie, about the, the, how that map was made and how the fire consumed mm-hmm. the map. So it's really very interesting. Uh, maps in film are an underexplored but uh, topic, but some people are breaking new ground here too. Almost every film you see features a map, subliminally sometimes you don't even notice it. You know, Thelma and Louise are driving along in that movie about 20 years ago. The, the, um, they're, they're holding a map, they're trying to figure out where they're going, but the map blows out of the car, and that symbolizes they're um, uh, breaking away from convention sort of, and then uh, exploring on their own. Sometimes maps are used very almost pedantically in film to show you know, the, the route that somebody's taking, but a lot of times they'll be featured as background on a wall or something else, and you'll see them, and you'll know that the director, assuming that, like any good director, there'll be no, nothing in it that's accidental, that, that that map has a reason for being there. It might set the scene for... London in the 1890s, or New York in the present period or something, but uh, Los Angeles, you know, in modern day, but but those maps have meaning.
1: Let's take a break. When we come back more with Richard Francavelia, The Mapmakers of New Zion, <clears throat> excuse me, is the book. It's out from University of Utah Press. We're going to be talking about um, Mormon beliefs and how those are depicted in maps. Of course, the uh, Mormons were, you know, some prominent settlers of the American West, Maps used prominently there, but also maps can be used to to, to uh, map out um, uh, important beliefs. And we're going to be talking about that. Um, as Richard Francavillia says in the book, we have photos, uh, famous photos, for example, of the, the Great Depression. We're all familiar with those. But there are very few photos of religious events. There's some reasons for that. Maps, I guess, can step in there. Are, uh, more following the break.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, featuring Amadeus in addition to seminars, green shows, and more as part of the festival experience. Information at bard.org.
1: Forget all those high-tech games. Pinball and Pac-Man probably don't have too many glitches, do they? I'll spot problems that they miss, because I know everything about the games and what they're supposed to do, because I played them all. Ah, to be a vintage arcade game seller. I'm Kyle Rizdahl. That story, the rest of the day's business news, and the numbers from Wall Street as well. It's all next time on Marketplace from APM. Join
0: us tonight at 7 on Utah Public Radio.
1: And uh, we just want here at the break to uh, get to uh, do some unfinished business. Uh, we have been traveling a lot, and uh, so we have been uh, giving you some encore presentations of, uh, of Access Utah programs. That's a euphemism for repeat on tape. Um, and so this question came in when we uh, revisited our conversation with Dr. Gary Weitzman, a uh, veterinarian and uh, with the uh, San Diego Humane Society. Uh, Julie's question, question about her cat. Why does she continually lick herself, including the base of her tail, until the fur is gone? We'll get that question over to Dr. Weitzman and get back to you uh, with with that. Um, more with uh, Richard Francavilli coming following more of the break.
0: The question you'd most like to ask the most powerful politician, the most innovative scientist, the most talented musician is the kind of question Here and Now puts to those very people. Your curiosity is our curiosity. Here and Now gets the answers and we share them with you every weekday. Join us for Here and Now on Utah Public Radio. Coming soon here on UPR, details at upr.org.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. From the earliest days on the American frontier through their growth into a worldwide church, these spatially expansive Mormons made maps to help them create idealized communities, migrate to and colonize large parts of the American West, visualize the stories in their sacred texts, and spread their message internationally. We're talking with... Uh the author of a new book on the subject it's called Mapmakers of New Zion it's out from University of Utah Press the author is Richard Francavilia, professor emeritus of history and geography at the University of Texas at Arlington he lives now in Oregon teaches courses in religious studies at Willamette University uh, and you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495 that's a toll-free number also we have email upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. We have a couple of emails. We'll get to those just very shortly. Uh, so, Professor um, that the, the quote I gave before the break, that uh, you, and you give in the book, that uh, we, we have photos of historical events. We're, we're all familiar with those photos you referenced from the Great Depression, but very few photos of religious events. Is that where maps come in? What, what's the connection?
2: The image that I show, uh, that I provide in the book, is a group of Jewish students in Colchester, Connecticut, looking at the, a map of the Holy Land, uh, which would later become, you know, uh, Palestine and Israel and that sort of thing. But uh, by that I mean that um, mapping, or, or mapping, is a little bit different task. We 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 ask it to do different things, and consequently, most uh... religious experiences that take place we don't uh... they're not necessarily mapped uh... and for for example when the muslims left mecca on their hijra to uh, traveling to medina uh... they we don't know that they had any maps we hear it as a story we tend to think of religion in terms of words possibly some images, but very rarely maps, and that's where Mormonism comes in beautifully because the um, LDS Church is created at exactly the time in history that maps become very democratized and they, they, they fall into the hands of everyone, essentially, in the early 1800s. And on the American frontier, maps are everywhere. And so the Mormon religious experience is unique in the sense that maps accompany it from day one, um, lasting maps that we have. And um, Joseph Smith's City of Zion plan is something that I discuss in detail. Now, it's been discussed before by historians and planners and others. But as a historian of cartography in this book, what I try to do is to show the deeper significance of Smith and Frederick G. Williams, a a partner of his, so to speak, in this project of of mapping the city of Zion, the the initial drafts that, that were done and so on, that enabled the followers of this new religion to have a cartographic blueprint for how communities are to be laid out that seems, you know, unprecedented in, in terms of religious history, essentially, and it's—I say—it coincides perfectly with the rise of maps in popular culture and the technology available to get maps into the hands of everyone in the 1800s.
1: So this is uh, this is yeah, if, if you map something that much detail, and, and you look at the, uh, you know, the maps in your book, it's very very detailed. This is making concrete, at least. Um, in prospect, something that's kind of an ethereal concept—it's making Absolutely. it very
2: absolutely—and that's what I dwell on in, in some places is that maps make things visible to us, and they give them certain kinds of dimensions. I, I should add, by the way, about this book, *The Map Makers of New Zion*. The map reproduction in this book. Astounds even me because I thought, well, I was hoping that the maps would be reproduced beautifully. Some of these maps have never been reproduced before; they've never been published before, and they're uh, labors of love by the cartographers. And uh, some of them were very old, and you know, from from archives. And I'm I am astounded at the beauty of this, um, the reproductions in this book. It's full color. And that does justice to the the map makers.
1: Yeah, that's, it, it is true. They're they're beautifully uh, reproduced. Um, what if you talk a little bit more about uh, this this concept of, of Zion? And, and I was interested. You you made reference to the map of the world on the floor of the Salt Lake City International Airport. I've probably walked over that map, <laughs> you know. Several times I kind of kind of notice it, but uh, it's, it's a very interesting representation that there's meaning you can get from that map.
2: There is and I'm not sure that it's still in existence because I know that there's a lot of work being done at the airport and that that map, that mosaic map on the floor in I, I don't know what the terminal number is, but it was the older terminal. And uh, I used to love standing there and looking at the map. And then when 9-11 happened and all of these security concerns, pretty soon that area was used as a staging ground to get people to queue up for the security check. And so, you know, people are more uh, worried about, do I have my boarding pass and my ID? And few of them look down, as they used to, at that beautiful mosaic map on the floor. Of the airport, so um, your listeners may be able to tell us if the map is still in existence. Mm Because I know that it might have been slated for removal as they were going to rework that part of the airport.
1: Uh, But the the, you point out in the book that the other major cities are depicted, right? But that includes Jerusalem, which is you know not as major a city, except um, you know in in religious meetings.
2: Right, uh, I, I, I think that Jerusalem is a city that is uh, far far better known than its population would dictate because it's a relatively small community. It's smaller than Tel Aviv, for example, where the, where the main airport is, and so that. But it's a signature place because it's a place associated with uh, Christianity, in the case of the of the Mormons, and Judaism too. And, of course, it's, it's deeply associated with Islam, too. And so this holy city is something that appears on the, on the map in the airport, because even though, by the way, there's no airport in Jerusalem, you, you don't land in Jerusalem, yet uh, that's what's shown on the map, because it's an iconic place that's part of our religious uh, traditions.
1: And the Mormons, of course, believe that uh, they're a city of Zion as uh, Joseph Smith uh, said, will, will be, will come, will be built in, in the Midwest of the United States.
2: Right. Uh, by the way, the Mormons uh, visited the real Jerusalem, uh, a representative, uh, long before they ever saw Utah uh, in 1841 versus 47. So uh, this place runs deep, and a number of people, uh, as they made uh, maps of the West, they considered Salt Lake City to be the new Jerusalem, and I show a map uh, that does that in my book. In fact,
1: hmm. and so this is this is an extension of, of belief. This is this is a cognitive map, to which points the way.
2: Yes, it was. And when the Mormons settled the West uh, in the Wasatch Front. They were, in a sense, reliving almost a biblical type drama, and they configured the landscape of this part of the world, or that part of the world where you are, Tom, into um, uh, um, almost a representation of the Holy Land, with um, the Great Salt Lake being the Dead Sea, so to speak, and Utah Lake up near Provo, or down near Provo South, but a little bit higher in elevation. Uh, that was a freshwater lake, much like um, the Sea of Galilee, and lo and behold, the River Jordan, or the Jordan River runs between the two in Utah.
1: And in, and in fact, that reminds me of uh, Bible videos you can you can get on the church's website uh, where that are filmed. or are being filmed, I think, at the southern end of uh, Utah Lake. It's a freshwater lake, but it's. Uh, the, the Church sees that as some country down there is being kind of similar to, to that in the Jerusalem area, and so they're, they're filming those videos there. Yes. And that, that's just an extension of, I think, how, how Mormons saw this land and continue to see it, I guess, uh, here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an email uh, come in, a couple of emails here from Steve. Uh, Steve says, I hope that during this morning's program you can explain for us befuddled newcomers to Utah and vicinity how the Mormon city grid system works. No doubt it is completely straightforward, and the people who grew up with it intuitively understand it. I'd bet they don't have to think about it at all, but I've been living here for seven or eight years and still just can't seem to get the hang of it. Seeing as I came here from Manhattan, which north of Greenwich Village is also laid out on a very straightforward grid, I ought to be predisposed to understanding the grids on which Utah cities are laid out, but all the same, I don't get it. Uh, It remains an arcane mystery. Hope you'll help. That's Steve. I don't know if you can help out. I think I can help
2: Steve. uh, Yes, uh, let me uh, preface this by saying that uh, the Mormons themselves have a phenomenal sense of direction that in part relates to the belief that the cardinal directions are extremely important. That's uh, in the book of Revelations to begin with, but moreover, it was embedded in the faith through the city of Zion plan, and that Salt Lake City, one of the first things that the pioneers did when they arrived uh, on the 24th uh, in 1847, July was that they um, speculated immediately where the temple was going to be, where how the town was, how the city was going to be laid out, and so Great Salt Lake City was going to be the prototype for many other communities that are laid out on a very tightly measured orthogonal grid: north, south, east, west. As I've studied the Mormons, I find that um, they have a tremendous sense of direction. In fact, one of my chapters is called Right with a Compass and Right with God, because the Mormon pioneers, in particular, knew those cardinal directions, and their entire landscape was gridded out in that way. Now, of course, uh, the street pattern, the street numbering is a little bit... um, um, befuddling to many people 100 west or 600 south you know those sorts of things but to mormons that instantaneously registers as a um as a you know, one click right two clicks left and you lock in on a on a um, on a location in the grid very easily so i would say steve it's time to start thinking like a mormon and develop that spatial <laughs> sense and uh nowhere north southeast west, west is and the mountains can help you do that and you'll be able to um, uh, blend in a little bit better spatially.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- nor- yeah. north, south, east, west, you lock in on on those uh, cardinal directions. And I was going to mention the mountains. When, I, when I've uh, been visiting places or lived in places without mountains, I, I feel somewhat disoriented because the mountains help me to orient myself.
2: Yes, and they just so happen because of the geological configuration to be largely north-south, trending mountains in the Great Basin of America. So that was another factor in helping uh, people better understand where they are. Uh,
1: Steve writes back in, he says, could you also elucidate the story behind Utah's grid s- city grid system? You've done a bit of that. Anything you'd like to add? But he says, is it true that it was invented by Brigham Young?
2: Uh, well, Brigham Young played a major role in taking Joseph Smith's City of Zion plan and applying it to Utah. Uh, Joseph Smith never saw the West. He envisioned the Saints going out West, but uh, his murder in 1844 cut short uh, his uh, being involved, but uh, his spirit lived on in Brigham Young and the pioneers who came West and laid out the uh, landscape of Utah. In that characteristic grid pattern. Now, Thomas Bullock, a major map maker who helped map the uh, winter quarters and then the, did the original plat of Salt Lake City, was a close uh, confidant of Brigham Young, and they worked uh, closely together on how that city plat would develop. I say in my book that the um, uh, uh, shortly after the pioneers arrived, they uh, in a very short time, maybe almost one of the most productive periods short term uh, in in american planning they basically laid out the S- salt lake city and by extension other communities would follow salt lake city was to be rather, rather limited by the lake on the west and east uh, by the mountains but its growth would be uh... Un- uh... hindered all the way north and south and lo and behold that's exactly what happened so I hope I've answered that question yeah. for Steve because yeah, very important. Brigham Young introduced some of his own ideas, working with his council and 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 uh, implementing a few more things. So they they didn't do an exact city of Zion, but it's mighty close in many respects.
1: So Steve, uh, shoot us another email if you if, if we haven't answered your question sufficiently. We'll we'll take another uh, stab at it. I have heard. Uh, I do. <laughs> hear from people uh, from the East who sometimes make fun of the grid system, but uh, having grown up with it, it seems very logical to me.
2: It is, and, you know, you think about the task that the Mormons had to uh, meet or face when they got to the West, and they had to lay out communities in a hurry, and the grid turned out to not only be sort of visionary, but also very convenient and, frankly, pretty democratic way to lay out land. <laughs>
1: One thing I will say, if uh, when I've lived in other cities um, uh, that that aren't as logical from my biased point of view, I have taken pride in getting to know the city, and th- then I have sort of uh, specialized knowledge that then I can convey to others. That's a bit lost in the grid system because it's just so logical. I, uh, you know, you don't really have to have that.
2: Yes, in my book, I note that many people, including uh, Jules Verne, for example, criticized the the American grid. And, uh, and, and, uh, and and people have long criticized Utah for being so supposedly unimaginative. On the other hand, this is a way of uh, uh, developing a kind of order in place. And in fact, mentioning the holy city uh, in the book of Revelation, um, it is a city four square. And so that uh, people envision this being like an American city.
1: And the very names, I think, uh, you know, probably indicate what, what a people's aspirations are. You know, the city of Abra- mm-hmm. Abraham, yeah. you know, there's this very c- there's cities named after places in the Book of Mormon, Nephi, Lehi, etc.
2: Yes, i like to say that place names, which are absolutely wonderful in and of themselves, are some of the shortest short stories we have, and if you get to know place names, they are wonderful stories. Think of a place like Nephi, Utah, and, you know, what that embodies. Uh, it's is just a phenomenal uh, experience when you think about it.
1: After the break, we'll have another break. Uh, I want you to talk about uh, depictions of uh, Book of Mormon geography. That's that's a very interesting uh, and ongoing quest. Uh, biblical, it, biblical places, uh, you know, there, some of those cities are still here. We know where they are. You can situate them. Uh, book of Mormon places, it's its all speculation. We'll talk about that. But before we go to break, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, the, the the plans, the expansive plans in the West. If you look at a map of this, the proposed state of Deseret, it's very expansive.
2: Yes. In my book, I feature several uh, Deserets on maps uh, from that period, uh, 1850s, and um It is wonderful to see what people envisioned uh, the religious uh, kingdom, so to speak, or state of Deseret to look like. We know of no map by Mormons that says Deseret, but Mormons did a tremendous amount of mapping of the West, and they did propose that the state of Deseret be very, very large, and it would cover most of the Intermountain West and even beyond that.
1: It it occurs to me also, just mentioned in passing, um, the the Mormons at the time, 1847, this was just a year before uh, a lot of that area was annexed, so they essentially went off the map of the United States.
2: Yes, they went into some very um, lightly mapped country, and they depended on the maps of uh, American uh, uh, explorer scientists like John Charles Fremont and Charles Price, his cartographer, and they relied on any map they could get their hands on. As Brigham Young said, you know, whatever map it is, I, I want the best. And he looked for the best maps possible. And then as they got to Utah, they participated with some federal expeditions in mapping, but they also became, uh, in their own right, uh, great map makers.
1: Let's take another break. More following the break with Richard Francavillia. The book is The Mapmakers of New Zion. Following the break.
0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change.
2: two great pianists on the way in concert. Leon Fleischer plays music for Five Fingers, a piece called For the Left Hand by Leon Kirchner, and Marc-Andre Hamelin plays this piece for Ten Fingers, this impromptu by Franz Schubert.
1: Coming up on the next performance today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. More unfinished business from previous programs. We did a program recently uh, where we uh, talked with uh, the uh, health uh, officer for Orange County. We're talking about hunger and food insecurity, uh, talking about a, a new organization, Waste Not OC. This is from Michelle. Could you please send me the link from today's episode? We'll get that out to you, Michelle. Uh, she'd like to share it. Thank you for that. She said, I loved the session today, but was a little disappointed that Cash Food Pantry couldn't stay on for the conversation. So we'll, in a future program, try to get them back on for a more extended uh, conversation, uh, Michelle. It was distribution day at the Cash Food Pantry. They were the director was very busy there, so we'll we'll try to respond. We'll get you that link. Thank you for that email.
0: Hey, what's up? I'm Shad, and on your show today, Young Jean Lee is one of the hottest young playwrights in North America today. She's known for bold, experimental work about gender and race. Get ready for Q. Coming soon to Utah Public Radio. Visit our website, upr.org, for more information on Q from CBC.
1: Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Ahead of Pioneer Day, which is tomorrow, uh, we are looking at some uh, Mormon history, which is, of course, a big part of Utah history and we're looking at it in a very interesting way. The book is "The Mapmakers of New Zion: A Cartographic History of Mormonism." The author is Richard Frankovilia, professor emeritus of history and geography at the University of Texas at Arlington, who's been interested in maps since childhood. In fact, uh, he's a just this just had to be. I guess he a former employee of Rand McNally. Uh, And his uh, publications are many. They include Go East, Young Man, Imagining the American West as the Orient. He lives in Oregon and teaches courses in religious studies at Willamette uh, University. You're welcome to join the conversation today at 1-800-826-1495. It's toll-free, 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxess at gmail.com, upraxess at gmail.com. And you can join us on Twitter. Use the hashtag AccessUtah. Professor Francophilia, I wonder if you could talk a bit about um, maps of uh, places depicted in the Book of Mormon. And this is uh, it's, it's all over the place, they have, and there's a lot of uh, studies that go into this. If you look at Bible uh, history, Jerusalem is still there. Damascus is still there. But, but uh, all we know about the Book of Mormon places is it's somewhere in the Americas.
2: Exactly. The Book of Mormon, by the way, you uh, just have to understand how central this is to um, Mormon um, belief and, and Mormon behavior, in a sense, because uh, this book, unlike any other religious text, uh, positions the Americas as central rather than peripheral to the religious drama. And uh, that, again, is something characteristically Mormon. In other words, it's a, it's a faith that springs forth from American soil and um, e- empowers America to be and, and recognizes America as a very special place. So the Americas that are depicted or that are, are, that are alluded to and discussed in the Book of Mormon, uh, given the fact that maps were breaking onto the scene at the same time Mormonism developed, uh, it became almost irresistible to want to map the places that were mentioned and described in the Book of Mormon. There's only one major problem with that. The places are not described in sufficient detail to know exactly where they are because there are no latitude and longitude coordinates or anything. It's largely a narrative then. The Church itself has always been a little apprehensive about this because, on the one hand, the story is what really should be understood, rather than the details of you know, spatial location and things like that. But again, I say it's irresistible that Mormons would think, well, wait a minute, I think I know where that is. Uh, something is described as a certain ridge of land or a, a hilly land here, with a lake here or body of water there. Well, I know. I think I've been there. I know. I, I think I've seen that somewhere on my travels. Or hey, it might be in a you know the next county. And so um, it, this has never stopped Mormons from mapping the Book of Mormon. Even the church saying, well, you know, you probably really shouldn't do that. Uh, And even a number of church leaders themselves have weighed in on where they think various events in the Book of Mormon took place. So having laid the groundwork, I'd like to just mention that the maps that I have in my book feature literally just that. They show where people think these varied uh, lands described and places described in the Book of Mormon occurred.
1: Yeah, very interesting maps, and it's all over the place. Uh, I guess pun intended. It's you know it's uh, you know the North America, South America, now, both continents. Uh, but but the impulse, I think, is is very understandable. You if if you believe in the text, these are sacred places. You you want to go there.
2: It's done very lovingly, absolutely, and it's done very passionately by people who've written book after book about this subject. So I try to do them justice by distilling a little bit about what they say and showing some of their maps. And these folks are, you know, uh, devoted Mormons who really want to uh, share with others their findings. And so they even, uh, in fact, some of them are looking at um, recent developments in geological history or anthropology to try to help them explain where these places, uh, where these things took place literally by depicting depicting them on maps.
1: Um will let you, Professor, after I read this next email, uh, perhaps you have a passage from the book you'd like to read. Uh, so you're thinking about that. This is uh, Steve who writes back in. Uh, Ask him to write back in if he. If he wanted further elucidation, he says it's not the north-south axis orientation which confuses this newscomer. Manhattan, too, after all, is on a grid-oriented pretty much north-south. But Manhattan is bisected east-west, upper east-side, upper west-side, lower east-side, etc. And the streets are numbered in ascending order from uh, south to north. Thus, West 57th Street is on the west side, 57th, Street, 57th Street's up. Perhaps it's the nomenclature. It's harder to get the hang of second west and third south. And I that's I think uh, I think he's right when I explain my address to to people at you know, a credit card company back east they sometimes say wait what <laughs> you have you have t- you have two directions so I, so I think uh, I think uh, Steve is correct that's probably where right. the confusion yeah, comes th- in Right
2: that's that's true and yet if you think about the grid abstractly the mormon uh, n- numbering makes perfect sense
1: Yeah you just have to you just have to think that that, that is that's essentially an intersection so it, it Put yes. right on a right in one spot yeah mm-hmm. uh, so do you have a passage you'd like to like to read professor
2: well, you know I was thinking about that as you mentioned that and and I'm thumbing through the book here and I would say that uh, uh, maybe maybe this I, again I'll just relate this because it's so crucial to the Mormon experience and the move west and so I'll just start out by saying that um as with almost every move he made, Brigham Young was both methodical and enterprising when it came to better understanding the West. He sought geographic information systematically and aggressively. Young's concern about getting the right maps for the job of migrating and colonizing is well known. Writing to Joseph Stratton in February of 1847, Young forcefully stated his need for maps in a run-on sentence that reveals both his passion and his impatience to get underway. Quote, I want you to bring me one half dozen of Mitchell's new map of Texas, Oregon, and California, the regions adjoining, or his accompaniment to the same for 1846, or rather the latest edition and best map of all the Indian countries in North America. The pocket maps are best for our use. End quote. Young was here referring to Augustus Mitchell's well-executed map by its exact name, um, New Map of Texas, Oregon, and California. That map covered in considerable detail the very area that the church leaders increasingly eyed at a dis- as a distinct possibility for settlement. Mitchell, who was now recognized as one of America's premier mapmakers, was trusted by many involved in the westward-bound movement, the fact that Brigham Young trusted these maps at a time when the Mormon leader was becoming disenchanted with numerous aspects of American society reflects well on Mitchell's reputation. So that's the end of that passage, but I want to say again that uh, uh, I'll go to the, a couple of pages on and say that, uh, and I'll read again, uh, from my book. As proof that Young was not wedded to Mitchell maps, however, he quickly modified his instructions by ordering Stratton to find the best maps regardless of authorship. As Young succinctly put it in words that left little doubt as to his sentiments, quote, if there is anything later or better than Mitchell's, I want the best, end quote. And I say in the book that in a sense, uh, that's what Young was all about. He was a a, um, a judger of human beings, and he looked for the best in them as prospective saints. And he also looked for the best maps and map makers, and he encouraged the creation of these careers. As Mormon map makers became, these map makers would go on to map considerable portions of the West. And uh, one of them is James H. Martineau, and I have an entire chapter on him in this book.
1: Just have a minute left. I wonder, uh, it's occurred to me as we've been talking about this, just going back to just general, where maps are and how we use them. Is there, of course, the technology has changed. Where we don't have paper maps anymore. we're using Google Maps. Um, but, but qualitatively, is, is how we use maps and think about them, has, has that changed?
2: I think so, and I think that with the rise of uh, computer technology, we are more prone to have maps that are uh, in access than ever before. I think, in other words, we are completely unaware of how frequently frequently we see maps and use maps today. But on the other hand, we may be getting a little bit away from drawing maps ourselves and relying on those maps perhaps a little more than we used to. I'll leave that up to... um, sociologist to figure out, you know, a little bit more about the consequences of that, or maybe psychologists. But maps are going to be with us forever, but they'll be always changing in form and format, depending on the technology. One thing I wanted to say before we close today is that um, another section of this book deals with maps and how they're used in the very successful Mormon missionary program, Uh, not only in the uh United States and in the Americas, but all over the world, and that's yet another uh chapter in this interesting uh, study
1: yeah there and and um it can be a powerful statement of aspiration Canada you uh you have a, a reproduction or photograph i think of the map of the world the globe, which is on the side of the church office building,
2: yes, it's on both sides the north and south facades of that uh building constructed in the early 1970s, and it's uh, sort of a mar- marvelous, subliminal statement about the, um, the aspirations uh, of the Church.
1: Here's a uh, question in from uh, Betty in Moab, who says, uh, Love this conversation. Incredibly relevant to my own personal research. I'm curious, have you had the opportunity to research or consider what Mormon settlement might look like in the future? Can we expect to see these developments worldwide with the spread of LDS temples?
2: It's an excellent question, and the answer to that is that these, that um, uh, LDS uh, perceptions are changing, too. I can't speculate much on what maps will look like in the future, but I definitely know that Mormons are going to be at the cutting edge of it because they have an entire mapping division, and they tend to use cutting technology, uh, and so I can just look forward to some great things in the future uh, from Mormon mapmakers.
1: makers. You have an interesting passage in the book where you talk about um, a film, American Mormon. Yes. Which features maps.
2: Yeah, these two zany fellows uh, decide that they are going to um, uh, travel around the country asking people about uh, Mormons. Uh, It's a documentary by uh, Darren Tufts and Jed Knutson, and uh, it's... uh, it's remarkable because it uses maps throughout in very creative ways so this uh american mormon people say the darndest thing about mormons is really a fun video to watch and it's really another interesting way to look at the way mormons uh, use and uh, respect maps uh, ultimately
1: we are uh, out of time we'll leave it there but uh, just uh, plug the book it's uh, it's uh, beautiful it's a kind of coffee table sized uh, with some beautiful maps in here and Very interesting. The map makers of New Zion, A Cartographic History of Mormonism. The author is Richard Francovillia. Thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate it.
1: Coming up tomorrow, we'll have an episode, the latest episode of uh, Climate One. And uh, we'll be talking with uh, two um, uh, high officials, members of administrations of the Obama presidency and uh, the second Bush administration, talking about the intersection of uh, pollution control and the economy. That'll be coming up on Climate One tomorrow in this time slot. hope you'll join us then. By the way, we're talking about homelessness on Monday. Thanks for joining us today, and uh, hope you'll join us uh, next time for Access Utah. Programming on
0: Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, an in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. Jesse Thorne here, host of NPR's Bullseye, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Utah Public Radio. We'll cut through the weeds of pop culture, share some irreverent comedy, explore in-depth interviews, and keep a keen eye out for what's worth knowing about. Bullseye on Utah Public Radio. Stay tuned for Bullseye from NPR coming soon to Utah Public Radio. Details at our website upr.org.
1: This is Utah Public Radio KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.
0: Thank you for listening. The time now is 10 o'clock.